to the book of Esther, Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8, we've been going through the book of Esther on Sunday mornings, and if you're visiting, you're getting in kind of towards the end here, but uh, one of the great uh, things that we see about the book of Esther is the providence of God. And I, I heard the, uh, the providence of God in the testimony of our missionary uh, this morning as well, as how he's been working in her life to bring her to this point. And uh, it's wonderful to see the providence of God. And I think we need to remember that things don't happen just by chance. Things aren't happening just by accident in your life and in my life. And it's the providence of God that is working. Now, as we come to uh, Esther chapter 8, we have here a message of hope. A lot of things have taken place here uh, thus far uh, in this uh, little book. And uh, here in chapter 8, we find it's a chapter of great reversals. A chapter of great reversals. There's going to be a reversal of positions, a reversal of plans, and a reversal of popularity. You know, God is a God of reversals. He can take the bad and turn it into the good. Uh, When man sinned in the Garden of Eden, God took man's evil and turned it into good. We read over in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, a theme not only in the book of Genesis, but a theme throughout life. And here we have Joseph speaking. He said, but as for you, ye thought it evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring it to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. That was a great reversal. From the time that Joseph was thrown into the pit to the time he assumes second in command in Egypt, we see that God was involved and turned evil into good. And that is what he wants to do with your life and my life this morning. We are sinners, lost and on our way to an eternity in hell. But as sinners, we can find the Lord steps in and changes us when we put our faith and our trust in him. Now, we've noted that this book of Esther has no mention of God or prayer. And it even has been challenged as to whether it belongs in the Bible. But if we look at this book from a secular, an atheistic viewpoint, we would have to say that, you know, for some unknown reason, these Jews just keep turning out for good. And it's hard to figure out. And all these calamities seem to hit them, But for some unknown reason, they seem to come out for good. But you know, our approach as Bible believers would be to say, yes, there is some unseen person behind the nation of Israel, and that is the Lord. So from a Bible-believing viewpoint, we would ask, what do you mean that this doesn't belong in the Bible? Because this is clear evidence that God takes the evil of mankind or a nation, and turns it around for good. Of course, this belongs in the Bible. How could we miss that point? Now, as we consider Esther chapter 8, it's interesting to note that verse 9 is the longest verse in the English Bible. Verse 9 is the longest verse in the English Bible, and it's all one sentence. I mentioned that to someone this past week, and they told me that for their final exam in a college class, and I presume it was an English class, they had to diagram that verse. 
Now, I know most all of you were great English scholars in your English classes, and you loved diagramming, didn't you? I did. And when I taught English, I also liked to teach diagramming. But we weren't, we're not going to diagram verse 9 this morning. We'll let you do that on your own uh, sometime uh, in the coming days. But this is the longest verse in the English Bible. It's one sentence, and I think that would have been a great final exam. But in chapter 7, we left off with the death of Haman on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. But as we noted at the conclusion last week, the problem was not completely solved. The decree of the destruction of the Jews is still very much alive. Long after wicked people are gone, the consequences of their evil words and deeds many times live on. Even today, innocent people are suffering because of guilty people who lie in their graves. And unless something happens here in the book of Esther, uh, and something intervenes in the nine months that the Persians are going to attack the Jews and wipe them off the face of the earth. Because that was the decree, and the decree of the Medes and the Persians could not be altered. There are about 15 million Jews among the estimated 100 million people in that empire, and so the odds were definitely against God's people. But you know what? God's people have always been a minority. And yet I stop to think about that, and I think about what's been often said. God plus one makes a majority. God plus one makes a majority. And so the Lord brought Esther and Mordecai to the kingdom of Persia for such a time as this. That's one of the great themes of one of the earlier chapters. And we're going to see how they act. And so first of all, Mordecai's promotion. We see this in verses 1 and 2, and then we'll look at verse 15. But notice one, verse 1. On that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. And king, the king took off his ring, which he had given unto Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther met Mordecai over the house of, set Mordecai over the house of Haman. You skip down to verse 15, and it says, And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, and with a great crown of gold, and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. Here's the first great reversal. It's the reversal of positions. Over in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 29, in verse 23, it says, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. And I think that verse applies to both Haman and Mordecai. Haman's pride brought him to the place where he would be hanged. Mordecai's humility brought him to a place where he would be honored. And according to the ancient historians, whenever a traitor was executed, the throne appropriated his property and had Ahasuerus confiscated Haman's property for himself, he would have acquired a great deal of wealth, but he chose to give Haman's estate to Esther. More than an act of generosity, this gift was probably the king's way of atoning for his foolish decisions that brought much pain to Esther and her people. 
It's possible that Esther later would share some of this great wealth with the Jews so they could prepare themselves for the coming crisis. Ahasuerus knew that both Esther and Mordecai were Jews, but now he's to learn that they were also related, and so the king and Mordecai were also related by marriage. You see, after Haman was gone, the king took back his, or his royal ring, the insignia of his authority, and gave that ring to Mordecai, making him the prime minister. With a Jewish queen and a Jewish prime minister in place, the Jews in the empire were in, no, were in a better position than they'd ever been before. Esther gave the management of Haman's estate to, uh, the, into the hands of Mordecai, who first opposed Haman and refused to bow down to him. And were it not for Mordecai's courage and the encouragement of Esther, Haman would still be in true, in control. But you see, here we have a reversal, a great reversal of positions, don't we? Now, I wonder how many of us, those of you who are regular attenders here and been attending for a while, how many of you remember Psalm 37? Remember, we memorized that together. Psalm 37, particularly verse 34 uh, through 36, where it says, Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. You see, the king had made sure that Mordecai had the proper clothing that was worthy of his office, and we found that described in verse 15 there. No longer did Mordecai wear borrowed robes, but new robes prepared especially for him. And the official royal colors were blue and white. The golden crown was probably a large turban, which along with the robe of white and purple identified Mordecai as an important man of great authority. Haman had acquired everything from the king by his scheming. Again, I'm reminded of Psalm 37 and verse 7, where it says, Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Mordecai gets what Haman had accumulated, and he was a deserving man. If you remember at the beginning of this story, Esther and Mordecai were out of the will of God, we said, and even went against their religion and what it had taught them. But I believe they were beginning now to see God at work. Why do I say that? Because they were prospering in riches and positions of authority? Oh, no. They were seeing God at work in their midst. Does God give uh, this kind of a happy ending to everybody's story? Do all faithful Christians get promoted and given special honors and riches? Well, if you believe the health and wealth preachers of the day, you would have to, you would think so. But you know, sometimes people take a stand for Christ and they get fired from their jobs. Sometimes people, good, faithful Christians, live in some of the poorest conditions in our world, but they keep on faithfully serving the Lord. God hasn't promised us that we'll be promoted and made rich, but he does assure us that he's in control of all the circumstances, and so he's going to be the one who's going to write the last chapter. If God doesn't promote us here on this earth, 
He certainly will when we get to glory. Secondly, we see Esther's petition in verses 3 through 6. Let's read that. And Esther yet spake yet again before the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears and put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which were all are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Here we have the second great reversal, and it's a reversal of plans. It's a reversal of plans. Wealth, prestige, and personal security would never satisfy Esther as long as her people were still in danger. To her, the most important thing in life was not comfort, but their deliverance. And she could not rest until the matter was settled. I think of some Christians today who ignore the needs of the lost world while they search for new ways to spend their money and have fun. They think attending church and bringing offerings fulfills their Christian responsibility, gives them the freedom to do with whatever they please with the rest of their time and their money. You know, we need more people like Esther, whose burden for condemned people was greater than any other thing in life. I read about a late night prayer meeting where attorney Jacob Stamm prayed, Lord, the only thing most of us know about sacrifice is how to spell the word. Jacob Stamm was the brother of missionary John Stamm, who along with his wife Betty were killed by communist soldiers during doing work for the Lord in China in 1934. They knew what it meant to give their lives for the cause of Christ. They were willing to sacrifice themselves for the work of reaching the lost. Now, Esther couldn't do everything, but she could do something. And that's the same with you and me this morning. You and I can't do everything, but we can do something. Esther approached the throne of the king and asked him to reverse the edict that Haman had devised. It was her interceding at the throne that saved the people of Israel from slaughter. She was asking nothing for herself except that the king save her people and deliver her from a heavy burden on her heart. You know, it's interesting as one studies the scripture, how many people prayed for Israel, prayed for the Jews. When Israel sinned, Moses met God on the mountain and interceded for them in Exodus chapter 32. And he was even willing for God to blot him out of the book of life, if that's what it took to rescue the nation. Centuries later, the Apostle Paul said he was willing to be accursed from Christ if it would help save an unbelieving Israel in Romans chapter 9. On Mount Carmel, Elijah prayed for a disobedient Israel in 1 Kings chapter 18. 
And in the palace, Nehemiah prayed for the Jews in Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 1. And like Nehemiah, Ezra wept and prayed and asked God to help his sinful people in Ezra chapter 9. Daniel humbled himself and fasted and prayed that he might understand what God's plan was for Israel in Daniel chapter 9. We read in Isaiah 62 and verse 6 and 7, I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day or night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence and give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Psalm 122 and verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they that prosper who love thee. There can be no peace in this world until there is peace in Jerusalem, and there can be no peace in Jerusalem unless God's people obey the command and pray, Thy kingdom come. You know, Satan would just as soon that we lay aside the mighty weapon of prayer. If we could just get us to quit praying... He would be perfectly willing to multi- uh, for us to multiply our programs and our organizations if we would just keep up or uh, give up praying. Esther's example encourages us to come to the God, to God's throne and intercede on the behalf of others, especially nations of the world where lost souls need to be delivered from death, and it includes our nation as well. James 4.2 says, Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. And so Mordecai's promotion, we see a reversal of position. In Esther's petition, we see a reversal of plans. And then thirdly, we find the king's proclamation. The king's proclamation, and this third reversal is a reversal of popularity, and we'll see that as we finish this chapter. Let's look at verse 7, though. And then King Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring, for the writing which is written in the king's name, and sealed with the king's ring, may no man reverse. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews, and to the lieutenants and the deputies and the rulers of provinces, which are from India unto Ethiopia, a hundred and twenty-seven provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. Try to read that sentence without breathing. It's the longest verse in the English Bible. But here's the proclamation. And he wrote 
in the king Ahasuerus' name and sealed it with the king's ring and set letters by posts on horseback and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries wherein the king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people in the province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take spoil of them for every prey. Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now the problem for Esther and Mordecai was that the king, simply by an executive order, could not cancel the first decree since the laws of the Medes and the Persians was unalterable. Now in modern nations... Such as ours, legislatures can reverse decisions, revoke laws, and the Supreme Court can declare certain laws unconstitutional. But not so in ancient Persian Empire. The voice of the king was the law of the land, and the king could do no wrong. The king couldn't legally revoke his decree, and yet at the same time he could issue a new decree that would be in favor of the Jews. And this new decree would let everyone in the empire know that the king wanted his people to have a different attitude toward the Jews and look favorably upon them. The citizens didn't have to hire a lawyer to explain this new edict to them. You can be sure they got the message. Don't attack the Jews. And since Mordecai was now the prime minister, it was his job to draft this new decree And what he uh, did was give the Jews permission to defend themselves against anybody who tried to kill them and take their property. I suppose if we saw this today, we could say he placed into effect permits to carry weapons and did away with weapon-free zones. Well, there were many people in the empire like Haman who hated the Jews. They wanted to destroy them. They wanted to get their, their hands on their wealth. And the new decree allowed the Jews to assemble and defend themselves and reverse the situation. I think it's quite interesting when you go back and you read chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, you'll see the similarity of the wording of the decrees. Mordecai used official language of the government because legal statements must be expressed in legal language. And this language may seem strange to outsiders, but without it, uh, without it, you could have confusion and misinterpretation. You see, you don't write a law like you write a poem or a recipe. But what we have here is something that unbelievers often point to the Bible and say, wow, what about the various massacres in the scriptures? This is one of those questions you might get to have a hard time answering. Does God, that make God a bully? How can we worship a God commanded to slaughter whole populations? How could you answer someone who comes up with this objection of the Bible? Well, first of all, you consider the decree that King Ahasuerus issued. If it was wicked for Mordecai to tell the Jews to defend themselves, then it was even more wicked for Haman and Hazareras to tell the Persian people to attack the Jews in the first place. Self-defense is not a crime, but genocide certainly is. And so do the critics of the Bible approve of the king's decree? I would certainly 
Hope not. Well, if they don't approve of the king's decree, which permitted murder, then how could they disapprove of Mordecai's decree, which allowed the Jews to defend themselves? Now, when we get to chapter 9, we're going to discover that the Jews only killed those who attacked them. They only killed men. They didn't take property, even though they had the right to. And I think we find that Mordecai's decree was in complete harmony with God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 3. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. I, Isaac I would have agreed with Mordecai because when Isaac blessed Jacob, he said, let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren and let thy mother's son bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee and blessed be he that blesseth thee. God promised Moses in Exodus 23 and verse 32, But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. Now, if we come down here to verse 13, it says here, The copy of the writing for a commandment was to be given to every province, was published unto all people, that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So the posts that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment, and the decree was given at Shushan the palace. You know, it's one thing to write a liberating new decree and quite another thing to get the message out to the people. Verse 14 tells us that their communication about their communication network. They didn't have telegraph wires or telephones or television stations, national media networks. They didn't have computers or internet services. All they had was the MPMS, the Medes and Persians Mule Service, and CAMEX, Camel Express. Verse 14 says the couriers hastened because they were pressed on by the king's commandment. Now, if we were only like these couriers, how we need to tell the peoples of this world in their own languages the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Because the King of Kings has commanded us, and we must go. And for the same reason, we often would hesitate. If a group of pagan scribes and messengers without modern means of transportation and communication could take Mordecai's decree into an entire empire, how much more should Christian workers be able to take the gospel to the lost world? Ever since the fall of Adam, the law of sin and death has been enforced in this world. And God could not rescind that law. The wages of sin is still death. That decree is still in place. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God put another law into effect. It's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, according to Romans 8, verse 2. God obeyed the law of sin and death when he gave his son Jesus to bear our sins and to die on the cross. But when God raised him from the dead and he put a new decree into effect that makes it possible for sinners to be saved. Now he wants us 
to put the good news into every tongue and take that news to every nation. And we had someone here this morning who wants to do that. And she's challenged us to do it as well. If we look at verse 15, it says here, in the very end of verse 15, the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad, and the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in every province and every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came. The Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day, and many of the Jews of the, or many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. The chapter begins with Queen Esther in tears, but it ends with the Jews rejoicing and feasting. Happiness of one kind or another is mentioned in this paragraph at least seven times. And by the way, this is the eighth feast mentioned in the book. The Jews had been mourning and fasting, but now they're ecstatic with joy. And the thing that made the difference was not the writing of the decree and even its distribution in various places and provinces, but the thing that made the difference was the fact that the Jews believed the decree. It was their faith. Faith in Mordecai's, Mordecai's word that changed their lives. They had hope. They had joy. They had peace because they had faith in what Mordecai said. Romans chapter 15 and verse 13 says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I wonder this morning, have you believed the decree that God has given? Do you believe that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life? The gift of eternal life is God's remedy for the first decree because he told us that if we believe on him, we will be saved. There was a young man who was having a hard time understanding this. And a man said to this young man concerning salvation, he was trying to help him understand this, and he pulled a coin out of his pocket and he said, I'm going to make you a promise. I, being of sound mind, do promise to give you this coin. Did you hear what I said? The young man said, yes, sir. And the man asked him, do you believe what I said? The young man said, yes. The man kept holding the coin. And he asked him, whose coin is it? The young man said, well, it's yours. It's still yours. The man said, that's right. But do you believe the promise that I've made to you? The young man said, yes, sir. And the man extended the coin to the boy and the boy took the coin from his hand and the man said, at what point in time did that coin become yours? And the young man said, when I took it. And then the man asked him, did you work for it? No, sir. Well, whose is it now? It's mine. It's mine. Did you earn it? The Lord knows you didn't deserve it, but did you earn it? Whose is it now? And the young man said, it's mine. The man said, the only way you can have eternal life is by receiving and taking that free gift. 
And I wonder this morning if there's someone struggling in that, your heart this morning with this idea of salvation. You say, well, I'm not good enough. No. I haven't worked hard enough for it. No. All you have to do is believe and take the gift that God has given to you. Now the last verse there in verse 17 says, And many of the people of the land became Jews. Now does that mean they all got saved? No, not necessarily. I don't think so. But I think it does mean they forsook their pagan religions and they became Jewish proselytes. Because in order to be saved, they need to still put their faith in God. Just accepting the Jewish religion and rituals does not save a person. And so it is today. Just going to church, a church that calls itself Christian, does not make you a Christian. Just going to a church that, where the Bible is preached and the gospel is given does not save you. You know, we have many different kinds of churches across our land, and many of them call themselves Christian churches. Some of them are big. Some of them are like ours, rather small. Some places are real popular because the religion is popular. But there's no true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ. You don't put your faith in a building or even this group of people. You put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise that he's made to you. And accept his free gift of salvation. Now the book of Esther opens with the Jews keeping a low profile. And so much so that Esther and Mordecai wouldn't even let anyone know that they were Jews. But now the Jews were open and happy with what God had done. They were willing to stand up for God. And the result of others were attracted to their faith. And even the pagan Gentiles could see that God was caring for his people in a remarkable way. It was Billy Sunday who said, if you have no joy in your religion, there's a leak in your Christianity. And I think that's true. We ought to be the happiest, the most joyous people in the world. I wonder if others see our lives, do they say, well, there's a person that's really full of joy. There's someone that has some purpose in life. If we would, as Christian believers, manifest more of the joy of the Lord, perhaps those outside the faith would be attracted to consider the message of the gospel, which is a message of hope. We're here to give hope to this world, this lost world. And we need to be faithful in doing that. Let's bow in prayer.